Red Apple Media Podcast Network presents This is Protecting America. Now, here's Emmy-winning journalist Rita Cosby. And welcome to another edition of Protecting America. The January 6th public hearings by a House Select Committee have been full of testimony and videos, but have they proven anything or are they just one big partisan show? Joining us now to discuss this is acclaimed filmmaker, also great author, and political commentator Dinesh D'Souza, whose new film is making lots of headlines. In fact, they mentioned it during the hearings. It is called Two Thousand Mules. Dinesh, great to have you here on the show. Rita, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Always great to have you. I've known you a long, long time. So first, I just want to get your take on the January 6th hearings. So far, what are your thoughts of where this has gone? Well, I think that they... The hearings have been a little bit of a bust for a number of reasons. The first is that they're conducted in the kind of outward show of a trial, but there's no real trial because there's no cross-examination. The normal techniques of having witnesses who are able to dispute things that are said, none of that is really going on. In that sense, it's a completely partisan enterprise, and also it's completely staged. In fact, they even hired a kind of ABC producer, I understand, or a former ABC producer to kind of orchestrate this to kind of make it look good. And then when their ratings weren't too good, it looks like they decided, let's hit the pause button, let's maybe change the times we have the hearings. So all of this is aimed at persuading the American people that something, you know, earth-shattering along the lines of the Civil War happened on January 6th. Now, most people saw it for themselves. They realized that was not the case. And so the narrative is fabricated, and it's really false because, look, the reason people went to D.C. on January 6th is obvious. They thought, they believed, right or wrong, the election was stolen and nobody was paying attention to it. Even the Supreme Court kind of gave it the back of their hand. So they were like, let's go to D.C. and see if we can get our representatives to listen. That was the motive. But the January 6th committee can't admit that. So they've got their starting premise is that no one in their right mind could possibly believe that. In fact, they even believe that Trump doesn't believe it. Now, if there's one thing you know about Trump, you know that he believes the election was stolen. Again, he could be wrong, but the idea that he doesn't believe it himself is so nonsensical that I don't even know how you can build a case around that. You know, that's an interesting point, Dinesh, and I thought the same thing watching the hearings, because if you ask Donald Trump today, was that election stolen, he would say yes, because that is what he believes. And that's what he's been steadfast believing. It doesn't matter how many different people tell him this or tell him that. Clearly, there were others who were saying, you know, in agreement with him. There were many others who weren't in agreement with him. But whether in his mind, he still today would stand by it, right? And that's kind of an interesting premise. um, You know, my wife, Debbie, and I went to Mar-a-Lago. We were renting the facility to have our red carpet premiere. And anybody can rent the facility. But I thought, you know, since we're going to be showing the movie at the premiere, it's, it's courteous to show it to Trump. So we played the movie for Trump in a kind of a private room. And I can tell you, he kept jumping up out of his seat. You know, I knew it. Look at that. You know, so in other words, he saw the movie as a kind of vindication of something that he has long and deeply believed. Yeah. So the idea that he kind of knew he lost and was merely trying to, like, overturn democracy, all of this is just a kind of hallucinatory departure from reality. 
Because if he believed that it was stolen, as he still does, then it's not like he's creating something. It's just his opinion, and he's sticking by his opinion. And he's trying to put in place the mechanisms to challenge the election, but challenge the election in the appropriate manner. For example, Trump seems to believe that Mike Pence had the authority not to, by the way, overturn the result, but send the results back to the states for further scrutiny. Again, Trump might have been mistaken. Maybe Pence was right. I tend to believe that Pence doesn't have that singular authority. But again, the idea that Trump was not sincere in believing that, look, he won a lot of these states that were handed to Biden. And of course, this is where the movie comes in. The movie, of course, using evidence developed much, much later. And I got to say for myself, I mean, I was very silent on this issue for over a year. It wasn't until I saw new types of evidence that I kind of got drawn into this issue. I thought 2020 was becoming a cold case and we would never know what really happened. But then I saw that, you know, like with cold cases, sometimes new technology can find a way to tell you things that you didn't know you could know or even see for yourself. And that's why I made this film. Yeah. So what woke you up in your words? You know, where did you go? Okay, well, it shouldn't be a cold case anymore. What changed it for you? Well, for me, all the earlier forms of evidence were highly questionable. So, for example, and it wasn't questionable because it couldn't be the case, but just because it's impossible for an ordinary man to adjudicate. So let's say if someone, for example, were to tell you the Chinese are hacking our election, you know, and I look at Mike Lindell's film and I see lights on the screen and I'm like, I don't see any Chinese. I just see Mike Lindell and a bunch of lights on the screen and I'm a movie guy. I know I can do that myself. So even if you produce a cyber expert, there'll be cyber experts on the other side. And how am I, who's not a cyber expert, going to adjudicate which cyber expert is right? This is like two doctors fighting over, you know, a a diagnosis. I'm not in a position to say who's right. So I guess what I felt is that a lot of the claims that were being made, even Sidney Powell, she's like, I've got 100 affidavits. Well, yeah, but that's Mr. X and Mrs. Y. And how do I know who they are and what they saw? And are they telling the truth? So it just pushes the inquiry one step back. And so I felt that if I'm going to even address the issue, I need evidence of a completely different caliber, one that is understandable and accessible to people. And ideally, if I'm going to make a film, I want people to be taken to the scene of the crime where they can actually see it in the act of commission themselves. And you show, I know, a lot of the video. Take us through some of the highlights that you think show certain evidence. Well, I'll just give one example, which is pretty typical of the film. I mean, you will see in the middle of the night, typically around between 1.30 and 3 a.m. in the morning, a car pulling up in the middle of the street, opens the door, leaves the car in the middle of the street because it's obviously, you know, 3 a.m. in the morning. The guy looks around to make sure no one can be seen, He's carrying a backpack, which is full of ballots. He begins to kind of make his way to a drop box. Now, you notice as you get closer, the guy's wearing latex gloves. And you also notice that as he begins to whip out the ballots from the bag, he begins to stuff them in one by one into the box, you know, one, two, three, four, five. And then he takes pictures, photos with his phone of the ballots going in. So not pictures of himself as if to say I voted, but rather pictures of the ballots going into the box. And so right away you have to say, how do I interpret what I just saw? It looks to me that this is a shady character, doesn't want to be seen by anybody, has somehow got a hold of a whole bunch of ballots, is stopping by a drop box. You can see this on video. There's no doubt about the authenticity of the video. It's the official video of the state of Georgia. And he's wearing latex gloves, although 
as soon as he finishes the job of dumping the ballots, he takes the gloves off and tosses them into a trash can. So now all the left-wing fact-checkers jump in and they make points, and the points can individually be held to be valid, but collectively they make no sense. So they'll say something like, well, you know, people are allowed to drop off the ballots of their own family members in Georgia, which is true. But A, who does that at 3 a.m. in the morning? Right, (laughs) right. Where did the backpack of the other ballots come from? C, why the gloves? You know, even if you say the gloves are COVID, why take the gloves off immediately following? And then D, why the photos? If you're not a mule that is taking the photos to prove you did the job and get paid, what alternative explanation can make sense of taking photos of ballots going into a box? Yeah, there's so many things that just that you even laying out here and other things that we have seen, Dinesh, where you just kind of go, well, that's weird. And this was just such a weird election. I was covering it, as you know, I was live on the air and covering all the different you know election results coming in. And I remember thinking, oh, this is weird, you know, and it was an anomaly because there were so many absentee ballots that were handed in. There were just, you know, the numbers changing dramatically in the middle of the night, which would lead normal person to go, well, that's odd. And just like you're just talking about these things, like why would somebody take off the gloves? Why three in the morning? There's just a lot of odd activities. Right. And then, of course, Rita, there's the very effective technology of cell phone geotracking. We don't realize, most of us, that when we download these apps into our phone, we're really giving permission for our location to be precisely identified. And that data is then collected by these so-called aggregators, and they sell it. So True the Vote just bought it. You can buy it on the open market. And by the way, all kinds of big companies buy it, and that's why when you're in the mall, you get a notification. You know, there's a special going on at the store right across from you. Well, how do they know you're there? The answer is they're geo-tracking your phone. Yeah, which is amazing, too, that you were showing where exactly people were. And it was interesting to see a number of, like, the locations that you have shown really powerfully in this film. So now you show it to President Trump, as you brought up, and his reaction, did he feel like he learned something? You mentioned he felt like he was validated. Give me sort of the sense of what he said. Well, first of all, he had absolutely no idea about this evidence in November of 2020. And so I think he was blown away by the fact that there was both the cell phone evidence and the corroborating video evidence. Let's remember, Rita, these two things go together. It's kind of like this, okay? If somebody's geo-tracking my phone, you can tell that I am going, let's just say on a given night, the night before the election, 1 a.m. in the morning, from one Dropbox to another, to another, to another, across, let's say, three counties, and I'm dumping these ballots. But there's only one of those drop boxes that has video. But my cell phone tells you I got to that drop box at 2.15 in the morning. So you go to the video, you go to the exact timestamp of 2.15 a.m. in the morning, and there's Dinesh on the video. What's he doing? Dumping ballots into the drop box. So think of how powerful it is that the geotracking points to the video, and the video corroborates the geotracking. So when you see this and you see that combination as you're talking about, what was your reaction and what was the president's reaction? Well, the president's reaction was just explosive. I mean, he was like, wow, this is fantastic. And he just goes, Dinesh. And it wasn't just me. I mean, it's true, the vote, this election intelligence organization that did the heavy lifting. He just goes that both the evidence itself and the manner of presentation he said, we're, you know, we're genius because this is something that people understand themselves. I mean, look, you know, you or I get into the Miami airport, we call an Uber 
And your phone knows you're standing, you know, at gate 17, door H, right? So people know from direct experience. So you lose your phone in a field and with tall grass. You don't know where it is. So you go on another device and you go find my phone. It doesn't take you within 40 feet of your phone. It takes you right to your phone. So this all is a way of ordinary people being able to confirm in their experience that this is a reliable technology used by law enforcement, used by the Defense Department, used by the CDC. So it's kind of weird. The left celebrates the use of geotracking in all those areas. In fact, to arrest January 6th defendants. And then somehow magically it doesn't work when it's the same technology is being applied in the same way to ballot trafficking. That's a great point. So talk about a double standard. And in fact, as you know, during the January 6th hearings, Liz Cheney brought up your film and so did Bill Barr. Now, Bill Barr tried to basically discount the geotracking. What was your reaction to Bill Barr? So let's look at Bill Barr's argument, because he made one argument, and his argument was this. He goes, essentially, in the big city like Atlanta, he says, there are tens of thousands of people. They're milling around all over the place. Cab drivers are going back and forth and back and forth. And so his point is, how can you identify a mule or mules going to specific drop boxes when there's just a lot of traffic going all around the place? He's implying that the phone geolocation cannot discriminate between random cabs, let's just say, going by drop boxes and mules going specifically to them. Right now, if this were true, let's just assume this is true. I then ask you this question in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. There were literally tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people, people walking, jogging, going on their bikes, cab drivers going back and forth. If it's true that cell phone geotracking cannot identify specific individuals in specific locations, how is it the case that the FBI is using this exact same data to say that Mr. X approached the Capitol, he was 15 feet away outside the front door, and then a few seconds later, he was six feet inside the front door. In other words, the FBI seems to think, correctly as it turns out, that you can identify people, and geotracking can easily distinguish between someone going by a Dropbox, either walking or driving, and someone going to a Dropbox. That's interesting. So in other words, they're using it to validate some of their charges clearly against Folks who were there on January 6th are saying it's good then, but it's not good on Election Day. Exactly. That's the comedy of the whole situation. And you'd think someone who's an attorney general who knows that these techniques are used by law enforcement every day suddenly not only pretends that the technology is kind of unreliable, but literally does a kind of guffawing belly laugh as if to say it's downright stupid. Well, and by the way, you really came after him. It was interesting to see you had a bit of a, uh, what was it? I think it was a Twitter war, right? Where you said, Bill Barr is the stereotypical small town sheriff, overweight and largely immobile, whose rank incompetence results in the whole town being robbed from under his nose. Is that what you think of Bill Barr? Well, I mean, I was trying to think of a motive, right? Because when Bill Barr first came in, I was actually pretty enthusiastic. I thought, here's this Jeff Sessions attorney general. He's done nothing for like two years. So finally, we have somebody. And I didn't see Bill Barr as a kind of rabid Trumpster. I mean, I saw him as a measured guy who was going to be kind of a, someone that, whose voice could be trusted. And so that's why I was so disappointed when I heard him on 2000 Mules because it seemed like he was kind of dug in. And then I thought, well, maybe it's the case that right after the election, this guy came out and said everything was secure. So he is like the sheriff. It's very difficult for him to now admit 
oh my gosh, right under my watch, right under my nose, they were kind of robbing the bank, and I had absolutely no idea. And so this is why he's got to basically say, who robbed the bank? Wait a minute, the bank wasn't robbed in the first place. Right, because otherwise it would show a lack of uh, quality under his watch. Exactly. Why do you think that so many people are quick to say, you know what, it wasn't there, or courts in many cases, by the way, didn't even hear the case of a number of these things that came up, not some of this new information that you got, but even some of the things that came out, you know, right after the election. Why do you think some courts were just very quick and didn't even want to hear the case? Many of them, some of them threw it out, but some of them didn't want to hear it. I think for two reasons. The first reason is actually a fairly legitimate one. And that is the courts in election law typically have a standard that is called the but for standard. But for the alleged fraud, would the election outcome have been different? And if the answer to that is no, then they're disinclined to review it, or at least review it on an emergency basis. Because their point is that, look, even if you're right, the fraud is obviously not excusable, but it wouldn't have tipped the balance the other way. So I think that it's fair to say that in you know, November and December, and even early January of 2021, there actually wasn't enough evidence of systematic fraud. And so I side slightly with the courts, and I can sort of see why they were reluctant to sort of dive into this, because they were like, we don't see at least obvious evidence of fraud of a magnitude that it would switch who goes into the Oval Office. But the second reason, I think, is that courts being the unelected branch of government, if you will, don't like to get involved in the sort of election business. They see that as part of the kind of rumble-tumble of democracy. They see themselves as a sort of branch that is sort of insulated from all that. So courts are going to establish a kind of a very high wall or burden of proof before they really get into it and begin to re-examine what in some ways has been decided as they see it by the electors themselves. What do you make of in these hearings, in the January 6 hearings, which are continuing, there's a few more left, you know, the chair, Benny Thompson, has been going after saying, oh, gosh, I can't believe that President Trump would even try to challenge this. Was he in the rubber room or, you know, I mean, all these kind of accusations. And yet you've got the chair, Benny Thompson, who never accepted basically Bush versus Gore results. He didn't accept Trump's election, nor did Jamie Raskin. They've questioned you know, his legitimacy. So is Hillary Clinton. I mean, if you throw in, there's a lot of Democrats. So in other words, it's okay for the Democrats to question the legitimacy, but it's not okay for President Trump or anyone else to question the legitimacy. Well, this is a good point. And actually, Molly Hemingway makes this point beautifully in her book that's called Rigged. She goes, actually, the last election that Democrats unanimously accepted as valid was in 1988. They have questioned every election that they lost since then. They question not just Bush versus Gore, they question Bush versus Kerry, then they question Trump 2016. And so what's unique about 2020 is not that a major party contested the election. It's that the Republicans, who are normally the party of accepting the outcome, okay, no problem, well, we lost this time, better luck next time. Republicans are the party that generally goes along with the result. And so what made 2020 unique is that Republicans, for a change, question the election. Democrats have been doing it for three decades. And is that, to you, clearly a double standard and, you know, ridiculous because, you know, it's the pot calling the kettle black? Well, I mean, you know, the Democrats are the party of voter fraud. No one would deny historically that going back to the 19th century, the whole idea of, you know, hiring operatives to get, you know, 
immigrants coming off the boat to sign blank ballots that are then mailed in on their behalf. I mean, Democrats were doing this against Abraham Lincoln in 1864. I think the difference is that in COVID, the mail-in ballots suddenly were everywhere. So the opportunities and the mail-in drop boxes were everywhere. So the opportunities for fraud became much greater. It's almost like the criminals suddenly realized that there was a, an opportunity not just to rob the bank, but to sort of rob the country. Wow, that is a very powerful statement. You know, Dinesh, what do you make of the fact that in the most recent hearing, we heard Benny Thompson say, you know what, ahead, after these are over, we're also going to be looking at electoral changes, 2024. (laughs) Did the Democrats tip their hand that that's what this is about, is changing basically the electoral college, the electoral process, and that it's really (laughs) all political? Yeah, to be honest, that's going to go nowhere. So I never mind when I hear all that kind of nonsense. Quite frankly, you have to amend the Constitution to do that. And in today's polarized environment with the two parties really essentially at 50-50, the chance of doing that is, you know, on a scale of 1 to 100, very close to zero. I think that the more immediate objective is just, it's almost like a third impeachment of Trump. It's like if we impeach this guy one more time, we can kind of make sure he doesn't run again. This guy has the ability to drive the other side insane in a manner that I've never seen. I mean, I sometimes drive people insane, but not to this degree. So Trump is in that sense in the category of all by himself. And does that say to you that this is all politically motivated? Or do you think at the end of the day they're going to try to push that there is some sort of crime, whether it exists or not? Absolutely. They would love to do that because that would put enough of a stain on Trump They might have thought, you know, two impeachments would do it. But in some ways, Trump has this kind of remarkable ability with all kinds of things to rise above the occasion. This is not to say that Trump isn't without flaws. In fact, the guy has big flaws, including his he seems to have, in many respects, appointed people, some of whom and bars are really good examples, turn right around and stab him in the back. I've never seen someone who has had so much disloyalty among people that would seem to have had positions of trust. So, yes, I think it is political from start to finish. I also think that people are beginning to sort of get the picture. I think also many Americans are, you know, Biden has been such an unmitigated disaster. People feel like he's ruining their lives. He's ruining the country. And in some ways, the intensity around 2020 and even the kind of, you know, unswerving interest in 2000 mules is driven by the fact that that result has caused so much trauma for the country as a whole. Oh, that's interesting, too. So you feel it's, it's also heightened it just in this climate. Yeah, I think if things were going really well, like the economy was great, people were doing really well, there would be in some senses a, a, an idea that, well, let's just move on beyond 2020, whatever happened. Maybe you're right, Dinesh, but nevertheless, for the, to kind of keep things going, let's try to fix things the next time, you know, and we don't need to really go back and look with a microscope at what happened in 2020. That was a one-time situation driven by COVID. We get it. Let's just fix things and move along. But I think it's because people are so angry at the way that essentially taking a narrow majority, the Democratic left has sort of decided that they're going to take over the country, create a kind of one-party state, weaponize the government against political opponents, act in complete indifference of public opinion. I mean, brazenly do things like try to shut down the oil industry, say things like if oil prices go up, that's actually a good thing because it's going to help us get away from oil in the first place. So this kind of callous and sensitive behavior by Biden and by the people around Biden, I think is producing a massive nationwide revolt. 
Well, the film is really powerful. It's so interesting. Everybody, you can check it out. You can go to 2000mules.com, and it is by the great filmmaker Dinesh D'Souza. Dinesh, great to have you on here. So powerful. And thanks for all that you do to keep our country safe. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. And everybody, I'll be back soon with another great edition of Protecting America. And of course, you can catch me every weeknight, 10 p.m. to midnight, on the legendary WABC Radio. This is Rita Cosby, and thanks for all you do to protect America. America.